What's working on purpose anyway? Each week we ponder the answer to this question. People ache for meaning and purpose at work, to contribute their talents passionately and know their lives really matter. They crave being part of an organization that inspires them and helps them grow into realizing their highest potential. Business can be such a force for good in the world, elevating humanity. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration to help usher in this world we all want, working on purpose. Now, here is your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. Welcome back to the Working on Purpose program. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, joining you live from Dallas, Texas, which is home base for me. If you don't know me yet, I'm a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose, organizational logotherapist, inspirational speaker, social scientist, and author. You can learn more about me and how we can work together at elisecortez.com or gusto-now.com. Let me, thank my, let me thank my partner and sponsor, Work Proud. We are a perfect collaboration. Everyone wants to know they matter and that they, the work they do is meaningful and appreciated. Work Proud is a mobile platform built to encourage employees to share stories and recognize each other's contribution. Work Proud empowers HR and business leaders to help create company cultures where all employees are inspired to feel proud of their work and proud of their company. Learn more at workproud.com. With us today is Ken Banks. He's the head of social purpose at Yodi and a British award-winning social entrepreneur, mobile technology and global development expert with an undergraduate major in social anthropology with developmental studies. He is best known for developing Frontline SMS, a mobile messaging platform today used by nonprofits in over 190 countries around the world. He's the author of three books, the latest of which is The Pursuit of Purpose, Part Memoir, Part Study, a book about finding your way in the world. We'll be talking today about this book, as well as his, what I like to call, wild life scratching for meaning and purpose, and social entrepreneurship. He joins today from Cambridge, England. Ken, welcome to Working on Purpose. Thank you very much. Lovely to be with you. It's wonderful. Well, I'm so happy to get to share you with our listeners and, and devour you myself. I loved reading your three books and learning about you, going through your website. Ken, what an amazing journey that you've had in this life. It's it's really remarkable, the trajectory that you have covered in the short time you've been on the planet. Yeah, and none of it was planned, really, either. Um, right. It all just happened, and uh, that's the most amazing thing for me. Well, it is. And, you know, I want to start by sharing your earlier life experiences because listeners and viewers, I think, will find it very inspiring to know really where you came from and really what you had to get through to navigate and find your way today. So I, I want to talk about your early life. And of course, you narrate this in your in your Pursuit of Purpose book, which, of course, I love. I can't wait to read the rest when it comes out, by the way. So send it over, stat. Um, but you talk about your early life of desperately seeking direction, meaning, purpose. And I love when you say this, you say, quote, I did eventually realize what I was missing, something to channel all of my emotion, empathy, energy, and passion into other than tears. I was in need of some sort of purpose, although it wasn't really called that back then. So what I want to do here is talk about those earlier parts of your life that contributed to how you see yourself today and who you became. So will you just kind of start wherever you feel appropriate? Sure. Uh, so I'm from Jersey in the Channel Islands. That's um, the island of Jersey, not New Jersey. I always find myself <laughs> having to clarify that because people hear my accents and they, they get very confused. So I came from a very small island uh, in the English Channel, um, a beautiful place. Uh, it's a financial offshore center as well. Um, so, you know, it's quite a privileged place to be to be brought up. 
Um, but I grew up on a housing estate, wasn't the best environment really to be to be on. My father was uh, a bit unreliable, um, a bit of a chancer. He died when I was five, leaving my mother with uh, me and my brother and two sisters. And we had a, a sort of a challenging upbringing, I would say. Um, and I think some of the struggles I went through very early on, those sort of first 10, 12 years of my life where um, I was very um, emotional about things. Um, I was I felt very insecure. Um, I didn't quite know or feel happy in my environment. I think they, um, they gave me sort of an insight and a drive to really work hard to find my way out of that because I didn't want my whole life to be like that. And I think those are the very early memories. But my mom was very encouraging. I mean, everything I showed an interest in, she worked really hard to nurture that interest. And I think that was absolutely key for me. Mm-hmm. I want to call attention to what you talk about, your, you know, this too sensitive stuff that you talk about in your book, because I think it's remarkable. What I what I see when I read that, Ken, is I, I would call that a profound sensibility, sensitivity intelligence, which has given you a tremendous insight into the world. And I can't imagine how heavy the burden was to live to live with that. But I want to call that out because, you know, you were you didn't do well in school. I think you said you failed six of your eight exams. And on top of that, you're considered too sensitive, uh, intelligent, but maybe not directed. I forget what the phrase was. So these things that the world didn't seem to understand about you were stacked against you and then labeled on you. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I, I, I was emotional about so many things growing up. I mean, I think the environment didn't help. There was plenty of things to get upset about. Um, you know, where I grew up wasn't great. Um, you know, having a single parent, going to a school where a lot of my school friends came from broken homes or they came from children's homes. Um, you know, never really having money, not really knowing what I wanted to do. I think most young children don't know what they want to do. But I, I didn't feel like I, I had the possibility of doing anything. I think quite often children dream of doing things and, and there's a certain reality sometimes in, in that dream. But for me, that wasn't the case. So I always felt myself, you know, very, um, just felt like nothing really was possible. I felt like I was stuck in a hole. I, I did cry a lot. Um, I, my mum despaired, I think. And as I mentioned in the book, I tried, you know, very hard to not be a burden on her. But I think I failed at that. Uh, and, you know, when things did eventually turn around, she was pretty amazed, I think, looking back at that child to think I actually had got anything out of my life, let alone the kind of things that did happen. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, we want to showcase. Well, and as we were talking about before we came on air, right, there's this whole thing about being able to, to stand in the moment and whatever comes our way, chance, luck, whatever it might be. You, you had the great fortune, if you will, of working at club and you got to work on this PET or PET computer with Mr. Cooper, which set you on your path to a career in technology. Uh, which is what you've done, as I understand, without any real formal training in technology. Yeah, that's right. Um, the the local club, there was only one place any of the children where I grew up could go, and that was a club run by this Mr. Cooper, who self-funded it, ran it. You know, he, he just loved what he did. He was a teacher, um, but I think he recognized that there was a need for somewhere for children to go and focus their efforts on the estate. And there's two or 300 children on this estate with nowhere to go and nothing to do. So he created this club, and at the club, there was these Commodore Pet computers, and this was very early in the days of computing. And most children played games and they did Space Invaders or as you almost recognize them as games, but they're very different, of course, to how they are today. 
I, I wasn't happy with that. I wanted to figure out how the thing worked. I, I wanted to break into the code. I wanted to understand um, what was going on. And you know, me and my brother had been very curious about all sorts of things growing up, buying old televisions, taking them apart, buying old radios, creating dashboards like Star Trek, and pretending we were flying spaceships. And so you know, with Mr. Cooper, I had this really great opportunity to explore computing at a time when most people weren't really doing it, all because he let us loose on it. Uh, and that was the start of my IT career when I was about probably 11 or 12 years old. Mm -hmm. But yet you still didn't just go in like the other kids, Ken. You didn't just go to play. You wanted to go break it apart, figure out how it works. And I, I find myself always stunned and amazed at just the beauty of the unique human spirit that emerges from each of us. Clearly, there's something in you that was calling for that, even though you weren't necessarily looking for a career in technology. When you got confronted with it you clearly opted into it in a way that most of the other kids didn't yeah i mean i, I think throughout life I've, I've been i question everything um so I'm, I'm like that annoying child that's grown up into an annoying adult uh and i never take anything for granted i never take anything on face value i always want to dive deeper and understand and i think with the computer there was this box that did things that just mesmerized me i i just couldn't understand how it did it it was it was incredible and you know, later on, as National Geographic picks on my, up on my work and all the kind of sense of exploring Live Curious, which was their, their, their slogan for a while, I think that absolutely typified, typified me. So um, I, I just instinctively wanted to know how things worked. I instinctively wanted to know why. And so, you know, when I had this opportunity to do it on these computers, it was just, uh, it opened up this whole new world. And I just seemed to be naturally good at it. You know, I didn't read any books. I wasn't given any instruction. I just sat there for my hour. And I just figured it out. And that's been the central sort of pillar of my whole career ever since. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. It's brilliant. Well, and then keeping along this whole journey of, of uh, you know, how you were reaching for something else in the world, you're, you're, here you are, a very sympathetic, sensitive, empathetic young person. And you said that one of the other things that really had an impact on you was that was the Live Aid concert. I think that was 85, wasn't it? Or was it 83? Oh, yes. 85. Um, I don't remember that, but I did get represent to it when I watched Bohemian Rhapsody. And that was twice. I love that movie. So why was Live Aid so big for you? Well, I had um, heard about, obviously, Do They Know It's Christmas was the big Christmas single by, by Band-Aid, and that came out the, the previous Christmas or later the previous year. And so that sort of thrust the Ethiopian famine onto our TV screens. Um, it, nobody knew about it. The Ethiopian government had done a very good job of basically hiding it from everybody. And the BBC reporter stumbled into this biblical famine. The single came out, there was suddenly all this press, sitting at home, you know, relatively comfortably in Jersey, suddenly seeing this whole new world of poverty, suffering, you know, children starving. It was, for somebody who got upset very easily, and for somebody who was always overthinking things, it was a real shot to my, uh, to my senses. And so when the Live Aid came out six or seven months later, it was an extension of the, the Christmas single. And I just, just saw more of it. And I just wanted to understand, just like the Commodore Pet, why is Ethiopia like that? Why are so many people suffering? Why are we so well off when they're not so well off? Why is there this imbalance? Who isn't fixing it? You know, these kinds of questions. So it gave me that avenue that you quoted earlier. And I needed something that I could focus on that I could perhaps have an impact on that was upsetting me rather than just getting upset for no reason. And, and Live Aid really focused me on that. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And your story is so compelling. And what's interesting is you and I are about the same age, Ken, and you and I hit some similar kinds of places along our lives where we had similar questions. So I'm very fascinated with your journey. And I think many of their listeners and viewers will find themselves in it as well. 
So somewhere in there, so let's see, so you must have been starting working sometime in what, 86 or something like that, or maybe before? Around then, properly working around that sort of time, yeah. And you had a job in technology? Was that right? I can't remember exactly from your book. Well, I, um, well, I, I, I did paper rounds and earned money writing programs for Mr. Cooper. So I yes. had side jobs when I was very young. That was my early entrepreneurial flair. I fell into finance when I left school. Everybody fell right. into finance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Well, so what I also think is interesting is somewhere in there you had, if I recall it right, in your first couple of jobs in finance, you still had this sort of niggling feeling like, but is this really where I want to be? Is this really going to be enough for me? Is, is this all I can do or something along those lines? There were some questions about is this where I want where I want the, the the game to end? Yeah. Well, you know, um, back then there were still jobs for life and finance was booming. And almost everybody I was working with took great comfort in knowing their retirement date and their pension. Um, I used to clock watch. I never used to walk in the office until bang on nine o'clock. I used to leave bang on one for lunch and I'd hang around outside till two. You know, I absolutely did not like what I was doing, but there was nothing else I could really do at that time. Um, and so, you know, the questions I was asking myself was, oh, my goodness, is this what working life is like? Is this what a job is like where you, you live to earn the money and then the money is spent on making your life happy? But every minute you're at work, you're miserable. And I, I just couldn't face that. I just couldn't face that. And, and, it, and it freaked me out thinking that that might be what, what working life was like. It really did. I can appreciate that in, on on so many levels, and so and then all the more interesting and compelling that you found your way to Zambia in 1993, and that would have your appetite for, I believe, your international development work. Was that your first international trip? That was my first trip. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. And so, tell us for listeners, how did that come about? So, um, I was due to meet a girlfriend in a pub at a certain time for lunch. I got to the wrong pub at the wrong time. Um, there were no mobile phones to correct the situation. I heard a thing on the radio about a tourist train that was going to go and dominate the cycle track that I went to work on. It really annoyed me that a, tr a train was going on my cycle track. I bought the paper to write a, a letter of complaint, saw an ad for this trip to Zambia that summer, and I continually had Live Aid on my mind, even for those eight years. I was continually looking for outlets and avenues for my passion to do some good. And suddenly the Zambia trip fell on my lap, but only because I was in the wrong pub at the wrong time, listening to a story on the radio that drove me to action. It was so serendipitous. It was crazy. It was meant to be, I think. I really do. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that goes back again to those chance moments that you talk about in your book and we talked about before we came on air. And remind us, when you did go to Zambia, what were you doing again? So we were helping to build teaching accommodation for, for local schools. Most teachers would leave Zambia when they were trained up because the money was better elsewhere. So giving teachers places to live was an incentive for them to stay. So we were working on a project to build uh, school accommodation. And was that a paid job or a volunteer job? It was a volunteer job. It was five weeks. I paid a bit of money. The states of Jersey government um, subsidized it quite heavily. But, you know, going from Jersey to rural Zambia, my goodness, what a what a shock. Um, suddenly I was seeing a world I'd never seen before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. I'm from Oregon, originally a small town, and then got the chance to live in Spain and Brazil in my mid-20s, went all over Western Europe and South America, had my mind blown wide open. So in some, that's not rural Zambia, but, uh, but definitely a mind-blowing experience. So um, want to hear more about what happened from there, but let's first grab our first break. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been there with Ken Banks. He's head of social purpose at Yodi. We've been talking about his earlier life and his yearning for meaning and purpose. After the break, we're going to hear more about what I like to call his wild life scratching. Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
Dr. Elise Cortez is a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose. An inspirational speaker and author, she helps companies visioneer for greater purpose among stakeholders and develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused cultures that elevate fulfillment, performance, and commitment within the workforce. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at EliseCortez.com. Let's talk about how to get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. As I've watched the pandemic continue to go on, we look for ways to help companies support their employees to handle the anxiety, stress, depression, and feeling disconnected while also helping to lift and inspire them with ongoing professional development. So we now offer a learning webinar series called Grab Your Gusto, Vital Wellbeing from the Inside Out. You can learn more about it at EliseCortez.com or shoot me an email to Elise at EliseCortez.com. If you're just joining the program, my guest today is Ken Banks. He's the head of social purpose at Yodi. He's also a British award-winning social entrepreneur, mobile technology and global development expert, and has an undergraduate major in social anthropology with developmental studies. He's the author of three books, the latest of which is The Pursuit of Purpose, Part Memoir, Part Study, a book about finding your way in the world. He joins us today from Cambridge, England. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. So for this next segment here, Ken, what I want to do is delve into some of those amazing, this like, I don't even, potpourri of experiences that you had in your life, right? That really, I would call it a, a tremendous stirring machine, right? In fact, I want you to know something. I was out running yesterday, and running 12 miles, and I, as I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, you know, there's a direct proportion to the, the discomfort, as you call it, that you need in life. I call it agitation. Those moments that kind of shake us up or cause us to get out of our, our own com- discomfort, that um, the size of which is directly proportionate to our growth and change. That's how I tend to think of it. You, I, th- I thank you for that because you gave me that, that sort of nuanced idea on my run yesterday. But I was thinking about all these things that you went through and did. Um, as you went along from you know this whole path here. And first, I want to talk about the fact that I think it was twice that you literally sold everything that you had, packed up, and left the country you were living in. Is that right? Twice? Yes, it is. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Tell me the ages and the circumstances again, real quick. Uh, first one was 30 when I went to university. Uh, and then the, the second one was about 34 when I left Finland and came back to the UK. Interesting. Yes. Similar kinds of times in my life that I did similar kinds of things. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't sell everything that I had and then uproot and go. So <laughs> so now somewhere in there, you had this crazy idea to start to create your own website, Kawanja, and that was in 2001. And you say it was to socialize your interest uh, and was a desperate cry for help. So what was that all about? So that very first website was called the Geesey Hill. Yuanja came a little bit later. Um, and, and what I did when I was at that point in Finland where I'd, I had once again, I had set out on this journey to try and find meaning, purpose, something to do with my life, which once again had ended in failure. And it was becoming a real habit, just going out looking for things. And I wasn't sure what I was even looking for. So I wouldn't even know what success looked like. But when I, um, when I, before I left Finland, I just got desperate. So I built a website that was called geeseyhill.com and it was named after a hill in Uganda that we used to climb up and just look across at the savannah. 
and I just put a manifesto, a rant, um, just a just a kind of just basically threw everything out to the world. And I thought somebody must read this, and somebody must empathise with my situation and think, you know, we've got to help this guy. But of course, you know, nobody knew the website was there. Nobody knew who I was. Nobody knew what I was even really asking for. Uh, and so um, it achieved nothing, just like everything else I had tried up to that point had actually achieved nothing. Um, so I, I knew what failure looked like. I was very good at failure for a long time. Well, and I, I so appreciate that, right? And it's just a continu continual march on. And, and somewhere you find your way into studying social anthrop anthropology and just soar at it, which I want to contrast, you know, your earlier years and in, in studies where you, it wasn't a good experience for you, you weren't successful. And the whole probably the approach was very different. And you maybe you were studying something that did, you didn't care as much about. But I would say the difference from what at least you describe it in your book is night and day, right? You were, you finished pretty much at the top of your class for the social anthro anthropology course, or degree, I should say. Um, so for our listeners, why anthropology? So, you know, anthropology was complete luck, and it turned out to be central to, to my career. Because I was interested in global development, um, and I decided when I left Jersey, which was the first time I sold up and, and, and left, um, I looked at universities where I could study social anthropology. And it turned out my great-great-grandfather was mayor of this town in England. So there's this whole crazy family history, which the book also touches on a bit. So I applied to Sussex, and you couldn't just do development studies. You had to do it with something. It was with French, with Spanish, with library studies, with knitting, with what, you know, some other thing. But one of those things was social anthropology. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. I quite like the sound of that. I like people. So I took it. Um, and it completely reshaped the way I thought about how you study people and problems and contexts and cultures and geographies, which was a really key part to my later work actually being successful. And again, that was a luck chance thing that happened to me. So thank you, Sussex University, for, for forcing me at the beginning to take that subject. <laughs> I, I think it's brilliant. Again, I what I also appreciate about how these things all come together in a story, right? As we as we can see how it all fits in the in the rearview mirror, it makes so much sense at that juncture, not while we're going through it. Uh, <laughs> um, and then somewhere in there, you 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 landed a job at Cable and Wireless. What was that, and when? So that was in '99. I graduated um, uh, near top of the class, as you say. Uh, I needed money. I didn't know what to do after that, really. I, it's very hard to get professional jobs in the humanitarian sector. Mm -hmm. They're highly competitive. So I just saw a job for a cable and wireless. It was technology. I was good at technology. Um, I thought it'd be fun to drive around in a van for a while. And so I, um, I became a team leader, um, which was funny because I'd never done this job before. And I, I was in charge of 20 other engineers. And it was great. I mean, I, I loved working with 20 dedicated, fun, engaged, talented people. Mm-hmm. And then this this year again, they're just the, I, I like I think that potpourri is the right word for you. So then then we go on. You already talked about your volunteer experience in Zambia, but you also volunteered in Uganda. When was that, and what were you doing? So I went to Uganda twice. I, I went two years after the Zambia trip for the first time, and that was to help build a hospital. And that was the same kind of trip as the Zambia trip had been. And then the second time to Uganda was in the middle of my degree where I found this conservation project, which um, we're looking for volunteers to do biodiversity surveys for three months out in the middle of nowhere in Uganda. And I quite like the idea of being out in the middle of nowhere. I've always had that. I've always liked the idea of disappearing. I've always liked the idea of being living a very mm. basic, simple existence without the complications of, of our lives. And so that was a very appealing trip. So that was, that was the second time I went um, to Uganda. 
Okay, and then we have to talk about your year stint in Nigeria working with the primates. I, that mm-hmm. just sounds amazing. And your pictures and what you talk about in your book is so compelling. Oh, I'll never forget what she said is that, you know, in terms of the primates, um, you know, they, they are harvesting the mothers for, for their meat and then keeping the babies for pets and that, oh, I'll never forget what she said in your book, Ken, that, you know, a lot of those babies, they would have broken limbs from being pulled away, you know, torn away from their mother. I can't imagine what you saw and witnessed in a year. How in the world did that trip come about? Well, you know, um, you know, even though I get upset easily and I know I'm, I'm very sensitive, I've never shied away from facing the things that upset me because I think that's what drives you, right? I think quite often we need to be more angry about things mm-hmm. uh, and we need to be more upset about things. Um, I, when I came back from Finland uh, after failing there to achieve very much, I was sleeping on a couch and it was actually 9-11 the day I found this, this vacancy. So I remember being, I spent a day on university campus using their computer. I found this random volunteer role in Nigeria to run this primate sanctuary. I came back and then I saw the news and everything that was happening with the Twin Towers. Um, but I, um, I love primates. I've seen primates at Jersey Zoo. I mean, who doesn't love primates? Uh, it was conservation. It was living in a developing country. It was doing something that, that felt like it was going to contribute in a meaningful way. And very few people wanted to go and live in and work in Nigeria. I mean, it had a terrible reputation and it still actually does. But most people were just too afraid to, to throw themselves at it. My mum thought I was mad. Most of my friends thought I was mad. Most people thought I'd come back in a box. Um, I nearly did come back in a box, but um, I, I lasted a year and I did. Yeah, I saw things I wouldn't ever want to see again. But, you know, you learn. You learn by being jarred, by being put in your out of your comfort zone, by seeing things that, that really get to you. And I certainly had that. Yeah, so I do know. So we've talked about two things, and I want to get the timing right. So your motorcycle accident in Nigeria completely transformed your life. Right? It, it, it ushered in a whole different place. What I'm not sure about time-wise is if you created Frontline SMS before that or after that. That was two years after that. So okay. the Nigerian bike crash put me on the path that led to that. Okay, so you you uh, this is an interesting story. So you you you, you were on a, a motorcycle with somebody else riding driving, and then somebody else. There are three of you on the motorcycle. You go down, you break your leg big time, and you end up back home in Jersey six days later, something like that, right? Yeah. So what was it? Tell us about what was it about that experience that ushered in a new a new way forward for you? You know, I'd, I'd set out from Jersey um, you know, six, five or six years earlier, and I spent all that time running around, selling everything, doing crazy stuff. And I ended up back where I started. Um, but it wasn't just that. I was homeless, jobless, penniless with a broken leg. So I'd gone backwards. Um, and just out of the blue, um, somebody I used to work with at Jersey Zoo, and I wrote the computer systems for, for Gerald Durrell's Jersey Zoo. They, um, they didn't realize I'd even been away. They, they, they got hold of me. They phoned up where I was staying, and they said, Oh, Ken, um, we need somebody who understands conservation technology and has worked in Africa. Are you interested <laughs> in a job? And I said, oh, that sounds perfect for me. Um, so I, uh, I hobbled on crutches to the UK for an interview. And I got a job doing all the things, everything I'd done over all those years, which seemed random and bitty and just scatterbrained, all suddenly came together in a phone call, which I wouldn't have been there to take if I hadn't broken my leg. That's another thing I just don't get. You know, like that's a career break, right? I mean, quite literally, that is a career break. <laughs> in, in all senses of the phrase, yeah. 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 Um, okay, so then where were you that where I know you were, you had to be somewhere, I think, in Africa when you had the idea to build Frontline SMS. So tell us the story of how that happened and what you were trying to help with. 
So um, in so 2003, when I went to Africa and started doing this work with this charity, which came as a result of the phone call, it was looking at how mobile technology could be useful in conservation and development work. And nobody was really doing it in any in-depth way. So it's an incredible time to be doing it. And we traveled a lot in rural areas. We went to Mozambique a few times. And um, we realized that mobile phones could be transformative for rural communities. But almost every piece of technology I found that was being built by people, mostly people that looked like me, by the way, not, not people in those countries, was aimed at large international NGOs that could pay lots of money. And it wasn't aimed at the people on the ground who actually lived and experienced and suffered from the problems. And that angered me. It really angered me because I thought the best people to fix these problems are the people who are there, who are experiencing it, and they're motivated to fix it. Uh, so I built a messaging platform that allowed you to do mass text messaging, and, and I built it in a way that meant it worked for the people who were suffering and experiencing the problems. And I just gave it to them. I said, here you go. Off you go. Do whatever you want to do with this. It's free. It's yours. Uh, and um, I'll help you if you need me. But if you don't need me, that's that's fine. Um, and so it was influenced um, on a lot of the work that I did and my frustration at kind of top down, um, you know, Western dominated uh, technology solutions. And was it, at least if not in the very beginning, somewhere in there that your messaging system was used to monitor the presidential elections, correct? That's right. Yes. In Nigeria, of all places. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. Oh, really amazing. Well, so now and we had to tell all that story before about how much you were literally feeling like you were reaching for something that would provide you meaning and purpose. And you're feeling that, you know, you had you failed or worse yet gone backwards. And then you you land in this place where you develop something that has been used by uh, hundreds of thousands of people or downloads in 190 countries. What in the world does that feel like? Um, flattering, um, uh, unbelievable. Um, it, it, it exceeded all my expectations, but it spoke to me of the value of building things that work for people, because that's all I did. I built a very simple piece of technology that people could just and understand and use. It wasn't rocket science. It was a dumb, boring, simple solution, but it was just needed. And the only reason I knew it was needed was because I bothered to spend the time living and working in the places where the problems were. And that was it. I mean, it was uh, it was staggering. It took a while to get going. It took about two, two and a half years. So it was a hobby. It was like stamp collecting. You know, I was doing my day job and I was going back and supporting Zimbabwean activists who were trying to overthrow Mugabe or get Mugabe to stop killing people or, you know, being used in Pakistan or being used in Afghanistan or being used in other, you know, conflict hotspots. And it was incredibly I was just proud that I built something that was helping people solve problems that I would never really be in a position to solve myself. It was empowering. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Did it feel at all like, gosh, all of this struggle was worth it? Did, did it did it register on that level or how did it register? Um, it did actually start to feel like it was worth it. When it started to really, you know, I started to get these people contacting me and I started to realize that I was helping people who were doing incredibly valuable work, in many cases in very dangerous places supporting them in a way that I never dreamt I'd be able to support them. And so I think, you know, I, breaking my leg was a very unpleasant experience. Some of the other things I saw, you know, in the primate sanctuaries were very unpleasant experiences. But I think they were prices worth paying to get the knowledge and the insight which I needed in order to build the thing that ended up changing my life and changing the lives of, of many other people. So, um, you know, it's who I am. And I'm only the person I am because I put myself through the things I put myself through. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, we're going to continue this conversation and get more into the, the, the space of social entrepreneurship. Let's grab our, our last break. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. we on the air with Ken Banks. He is head of social purpose at Yodi. We've been talking a bit about some of the amazing potpourri of experiences that he's accumulated over his life and then how they led him to where he was able to, to create Frontline SMS. After the break, we're going to hear more about what he's doing these days and his take on social entrepreneurship. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Dr. Elise Cortez is a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose. An inspirational speaker and author, she helps companies visioneer for greater purpose among stakeholders and develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused cultures that elevate fulfillment, performance, and commitment within the workforce. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at EliseCortez.com. Let's talk about how to get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. I mentioned after the first break about the Grab Your Gusto Wellbeing webcast learning series. The content of this program is adapted from part one of my recently published book called Purpose Ignited, How Inspiring Leaders Ignite Passion and Elevate Cause, which is now available on Amazon. I wrote that book to awaken readers to their passion and purpose and help transform them into inspirational leaders who enliven the workplace and elevate the contribution of all business to the stakeholders. So if you're just joining us, my guest today is Ken Banks. He is the head of social purpose at Yodi. He's also a British award-winning social entrepreneur, mobile technology and global development expert with an undergraduate major in social anthropology with developmental studies. He is the best known for his, de- his developing Frontline SMS, a mobile managing platform, excuse me, mobile messaging platform used by nonprofits in over 190 countries around the world. Judge today from Cambridge, England, I'm your host, Dr. Lise Cortez. So from here, well, I want to go back to that the, your SMS um, platform. So you left that, I think, in 2012 to let others take it forward. So first, how did you realize it was time for you to step out and go do something else? I think I had um, I had memories back to when I hated work. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, oh, I no. <laughs> getting flashbacks to Jersey and, and standing outside the bank until 10 seconds to nine and then going into work. I, um, I know what I'm good at. And I also know what I'm not good at. And I'm just very honest with myself. Life is too short to not be honest with yourself. And I was starting to do things I didn't enjoy. Um, I was finding myself further and further removed from the users, further and further removed from the problems and challenges that technology could solve. And it was becoming about raising money, hiring staff, filling in anti-corruption policies for donors. It was, it was a mechanics of running an organization. And I never signed up to do that. So I just thought, you know, I've taken it as far as I can. I've had a good run. I had five very good years where I won almost everything I could imagine winning, fellowships, Nat Geo awards. I mean, it was incredible. Um, I thought, well, I probably should quit while I'm ahead. <laughs> so I quit while <laughs> I was ahead. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, before we get into what you're doing today at Yodi, there, I, there would be, what, about six years between that time. So what did you do in those years? Um, I tried a few projects. Um, I was very keen on local bartering, local exchange systems, local community empowerment. Um, I wrote a couple of books. Um, the Rise of the Reluctant Innovator was I the loved. first. 
which was about nine other, well, 10 people who had stories like mine, you know, kind of fell into some big problem they never really expected and ended up, their lives ended up, you know, devoting themselves to doing that. So that was my first book. That was quite a lot of work. I consulted. I traveled around a bit. I spent time on a ship with Archbishop Desmond Tutu sailing the Pacific, talking to students. And he did the forward, in fact, to the rise yes. of the innovator. Um, I did another book that Peter Gabriel, the famous musician, did a forward for. I mean, this is all kind of weird stuff. Even when just me just saying that now, it just sounds very weird. So I consulted. I earned money. I, had, I started a family. Um, I settled down a bit and became a bit normal. I suppose. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, so what I like to think about it, Ken, is uh, you, you've accumulated all these experiences in your life. And it was, even though your mother never got the chance to meet your children, it seems, I think it's beautiful that you also got that experience too, on top of everything else that you've done. And I'm thrilled about that. And I'm really captivated to understand you, you came to Yodi in 2018 and you were today our head of social purpose. So what I find fascinating about that, you stopped engaging on your Kawanja site then, so I think we need to understand just what in the world does Yodi do and how has it so captivated you? So Yodi is a digital identity company. They, uh, they have a product and services that allow you to prove who you are online and in person. They can prove elements of your ID, your, your age, your address, your nationality, you know, th those, kinds of, those kinds of things. So it solves a very big identity issue that exists on the, on the internet. Um, I was actually on their Guardian Council since 2016. So they invited me to sit on this external council where, where I helped them with ethical challenges, with kind of moral issues and challenges as a business that they might face. And they were also keen to have people like me from outside of the sector to be able to give input and advice on what they were doing. And they're a B Corp. Um, they have a very strong set of guiding principles. We have ethics committees. They have signed up to all sorts of pledges. So ethically, they felt, you know, like a very good company who were trying very, very hard to do the right thing. And I saw so few private sector companies who were that committed. Mm -hmm. And so there probably weren't that many jobs I could have done, to be honest with you. And because I knew Yoti, um, the CEO heard I was looking for a, a proper job. Huanja was running, but I decided with a young family, it's time to get serious. You know, I've got a mortgage. I need to bring them up. I want to go on holiday with them. I don't want to be scraping around. So I, uh, I told them I was looking for work. The CEO asked me to sort of explain what I could do for them, and, and I did. And and I joined in in 2018. So it was again more marriage of convenience in a sense. There was a you know spiritually, ethically sound company that spoke to my values that I, I wanted to work for, and they had a vacancy. Well, they, they made a vacancy. <laughs> mm -hmm. And what does it mean, head of social purpose? That's I don't think I've ever he seen such a title before, but I like it. Yeah, no, I love the title. Um, well, it was head of social impact at the beginning, um, but I decided that impact was too focused on the end result. You know, impact is all about what's changed. And I I felt social purpose was more about the process and the, eth and the ethics and the feeling and the DNA of what we were trying to do. So it, it was changed halfway through to social purpose. And my job is to think about how we can use our uh, human resources, use our technologies, use whatever we have to solve social and environmental problems on the planet. So it's to take what we have commercially and do socially beneficial things with it. It's a, kind of a dream job, really. And I, I get paid to do that now, which is, you know, I wasn't, that wasn't always the case when I was, when I was starting out. Uh, yeah, well, absolutely. And, and you certainly are a beautiful sum total of everything that you've accumulated in terms of experiences, your values, your expression. And I'm really intrigued with your, your focus, your perspective on social entrepreneurship. You say in your book, 
um, the resistant uh, the resistant innovator, I think it is. Um, and you described the, these people as driven, persistent, ambitious individuals working on innovative solutions to society's most pressing problems. And I, what I find fascinating about that is, of course, that's you, and you, but you have a perspective about about these these individuals. And it seems it seems from what I could tell of the book that you have spent some time mentoring these kinds of people to help them along their journey. Perfect application of all of your experiences. Yeah, I mean, I've I've always felt even before I'd actually achieved anything, I always wanted to help people. So you know, even writing computer programs for Freddie Cooper, which was helping children with learning difficulties, because the computer could do that, and I was able to help. I want I wanted to do it. So I've always been drawn to be helpful. Sometimes I'm probably over helpful. So you know, when I meet people who are trying to solve problems, and when I feel I have something that might help them on their way, and perhaps ideally save them the pain and the anguish I had to go through in order to get to a point of, of success it's a no-brainer for me to um to offer that that time uh, and that effort and also i feel i should pay back you know i was lucky i i found my purpose i found my meaning i excelled i i succeeded i did things beyond my wildest dreams the world has been kind to me over the last 15 years so i need to give back it's payback time and so i just feel a very deep sense of needing to do that I love that. And I think the world would be a such better place if we if more people have took that stance in that position. I completely agree with that. And, and then I want to go into something that you say in your book that I think is wildly important for our listeners. Anybody who's even gravitating to this notion of meaning and purpose and making a difference, especially through social entrepreneurship. But in your in your in your book, The Rise of the Reluctant Innovator, you talk about how all ten of the people featured in this in this book took their chance. And that what makes their stories even more interesting is that in most cases, they weren't even looking for anything to solve. Right. Um, the thing that ended up taking over their lives was found them, as you say. And and this speaks to what you and I talked about at the end of the show, why planning isn't necessarily everything. And that when we embrace serendipity and, and chance and luck in the pursuit of social change can actually take, take a hold of us. So I, you talk also about this notion of, you know, uh, being of being listening to what's happening out in the world and and understanding it from the front lines vantage point and then developing the skills to address that. So I think that's really important because that that's the you know as you say in your book and as I agree, the opposite approach that we tend to learn in school where we get a bunch of skills and we go try to put them to work in the world. Right. So yeah. Speak to that really crazy idea you have about this backwards approach, if you will. You know, the, um, the the people in the rise of reluctant innovators, like myself, they, they, they'd got themselves out into the world. Um, so, you know, you're not going to find a third third world problem necessarily in, in Washington, D.C. or New York. Right. If you if you if, if you're drawn to that kind of work, you need to go to a third world or developing country. So I think the first lesson for me has always been if, if you want to do something meaningful, you need to get yourself out into the places where the problems are. If you're into homelessness or you, you're troubled about homelessness or you cry when you see refugees fleeing areas and sleeping in the streets and. Go and work with homeless people. Spend time in homeless environments, right? Then that will that will give you some ideas, or at least it may give you an idea of how you might be able to contribute to a solution. But the key for me has always been, and I gave a talk in Munich about this, is about paying attention. And the title of that talk was Social Change Begins by Paying Attention. Because nothing happens if you don't pay attention. That's the very first step. And luckily, paying attention is not hard. Right. No one should really have an excuse to not pay attention. And I paid attention and all the people in the reluctant innovator paid attention. And anybody who cares about the planet can take time to pay attention. Um, and from there, you will find things that annoy you, trouble you, 
make you angry. Um, and those are the things then that you need to focus on because you need to find something that will make you get up every morning. You know, this is a life journey, not a job. I, I think the word job is, is completely wrong when these things find you. It's a calling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Agreed. The other thing that you talk about, which I completely agree with, is that you talk about um, going to go find out on the front lines what the problem is, involving the local people that it that it that it that it that it, it, it hurts, finding out from their perspective what they need, and then involving them in the solution, not just you know packaging up here. I brought you a solution. I'm coming over from the United States. Here it is. Yeah. Um, that's just also really important to talk about. Yeah, no, completely. And I, um, you know, I, I always knew when I was traveling in these places that I had the luxury of being able to get on a plane home. You know, however much you try and immerse yourself in these environments, you always have a choice that those people never have. They can't escape what they're experiencing. That is that is their life. And so for me, if you think about impact and you think about how can I possibly have the widest impact, can I, how can my efforts be, be multiplied? The, the thing is, you need to build an army. Right? You need to inspire and motivate and drive as many people as you can to action so that when you go, that work continues. You know, I always felt that with Frontline SMS. I thought, if I stop tomorrow, will that product continue to have an impact? And the answer was yes. And I think that's a question we should maybe all ask ourselves. If I stop tomorrow, will the goodness continue? Will that positivity continue? And if it won't, then you're probably doing it, doing it the wrong way. But I think absolutely we need to motivate, inspire, help and support the people that are best placed to solve those problems. And that's not a white guy from the UK, mm-hmm. not in the context of what I was seeing. Mm-hmm. So we're getting close to being out of time here, but I want to get two more things out of you. First, um, since I'm so interested in helping people across the world come alive like you have, you have come alive. You literally have scratched and clawed for this meaning and purpose, and you did it. You found a way to make a difference in the world. So my question to you, Ken, is do you think we that's it's just a requirement? Do we have to go through the wild alive scratching to get there? Um, I don't think we do. Some people find their calling straight away, and I, I hate them for it. <laughs> well, not really. I don't hate them at all. But uh, some people find their thing, you know, their thing very quickly. Um, I think that I think you, if you're deeply committed to making change and creating change and and doing good, what separates you from other people is that you continue looking and you don't give up. Mm-hmm. If you're fortunate enough to find it early, then great, because you waste don't waste time looking. I wasted years and years looking. But I think what separates the real committed um, individuals is that you do not just give up when you fail the first time. You get yourself up and you go again and you get yourself up and you go again and you never let go. And if at the end, you know, you're lying in bed and you take your last breath and you think to yourself, you know, I never found it, but damn, did I try. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. ever want to say I didn't try. I don't want to ever, ever say to my kids, I did not try to make the world better for you. Because that's the worst thing I think I could say to them. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And and I would, you know, knowing what I do about the uh, the role of purpose in life, purpose and works in part because we don't know when we're leaving. Um, we don't know what the circumstances are, and so it gives us sort of an urgency to live each day, which seems to me that just how you've you've really governed your life. Um, so in the worst thing we could do is get to the end and say, oh, I wish I would have. Oh, gosh, I wish I would have gone after that. So much of what I'm doing is trying to motivate and encourage and inspire people to go for the very life and reach for what you've done, which is a big reason I wanted to have you on the show was to showcase, look, here's a living, breathing example of what it looks like when you continue on, you persist, even when the going gets really tough and you feel like you failed, you just keep going. And I, your example, your story is so important in that way. 
Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So so here we are at the end already. Um, you, you know the show is listened to by people all over the world who really are out to create workplaces where people actually do want to come to work, where inspirational leaders lead them to their greatness, and we do business that betters the world. So with that, what would you like to leave our listeners and viewers with? I think um, for most people, I think the key is to, to pay attention, immerse yourself in the places where the problems that trouble you are, and don't think you have to help a million people to do good. If we all help just one person, we would solve the problems of the world. So don't get obsessed with scale. Just become obsessed with finding something that switches you on and throw everything you have at that. I like that. In fact, you have a quote in, I think it's the Reluctant Innovator at the very beginning about the importance of coming alive. What the world needs is for more people to come alive. Absolutely. And that's exactly why my next anthology of men that I'm curating, stories collecting from men across the world about how they've discovered their purpose is called Alive from the Core. So completely agree with that, Ken. And I'm so happy to cross paths with you. You know that you can't escape from me now, right? You know, I'm on your trail and I, you know, you're, you're in my, you're in my zone. So I'm so happy to have you on, know you and share you with our listeners and viewers. Thank you so much for being on. Uh, thank you very much. Listeners and viewers, if you want to learn more about Ken Banks and the work he does at Yodi, you can go to yodi.com forward slash social purpose. That's how you can find out about his current work today. You can still also access his personal site, which speaks to his journey prior to joining Yodi by visiting the site uh, kawanja.net. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, but let me let me pronounce, let me spell it for you. It's K-I-W-A-N-J-A.net. And thanks again to our partnering sponsor, WorkProd, which helps companies build a platform where your workforce receives meaningful feedback and thanks for the work from people they, they work with across the company. Last week, if you missed the live show, you can always catch a reported podcast. We were on there with Tim Jones, aka the Grow Good Guy, talking about the work he does helping companies transition to B Corp status, like Ken was talking about. Next week, we'll be on the air with Dana Mendenhall talking about her perspective on redefining no and transforming failure and rejection into unimaginable success and boundless opportunities. See you there. Remember that works at least a third of our life, so let's work on purpose. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, each week on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Together, we'll create a world where business operates conscientiously, leadership inspires impassioned performance, and employees are fulfilled in work that provides the meaning and purpose they crave. See you there. Let's work on purpose.